Well, good morning. We're going to continue our Bible study on the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Romans, and we're now in a very important section where Paul is talking about the wrath of God, and it is revealed from heaven, it says. So we want to understand this section, and we want to go over it. It is, it is very, very important to give us a foundation of what sin is and what God's wrath is and why God has wrath and and all. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, there's no one good but you. There is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. And so I come to you because I need you. I need you to empower me and anoint me and give me an unction to herald this important section of your holy word rightly and fully. I ask you to guard my tongue from error. I ask you, God, to, that for these that are here this morning and those that are watching by means of the internet and those who will be watching at some later time, that you will help them to understand the truth, that they will hear only the truth, that you will guard their ears and their hearts and their minds from hearing anything that is not and believing anything that is not right and true and biblical. Father, do all these things to your own glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm saying this for the benefit of those of you who will be watching this at some later time, and maybe even those who are watching right now. Um, if you do not belong to the Covenant of Peace Church, then I'm not your pastor. Now, I'd love to be your pastor, but I'm not your pastor unless you're a member of the Covenant of Peace Church. And if you are not going to another church and, and you, you're sitting underneath a group of, of godly elders, godly pastors, then you're in rebellion to the Word of God. Sitting at your table or, or kitchen table or your office table, desk, or whatever, wherever you are to watch a video like this is not a substitute for you getting up, getting dressed, and going to the local church, being a part of the local church, uh, stimulating your other brothers and sisters to love and to good works and to not forsake the assembling of yourself together. So I'm, I'm asking all of you who are not members of a local church to become members of a local church. And if you want to become a member of this church, we'd love to have you. But we have, uh, we have a very uh, rigid uh, uh, due diligence that we go through so that we can make sure that lost people don't become members. And so I'm asking you to do that. And, and those of you who give faithfully to this ministry, I greatly appreciate it. I praise, pray that God will bless you abundantly, but I do not want your gift to this church and to this ministry to interrupt your faithful giving to the local church that, of which you are a member. So do not rob that church to give to this church. That's not biblical. That's not correct. This is probably one of the first times you're ever going to hear a pastor tell you not to give money. So I want you to be right. I want you to be blessed of God, and I want you. I want God to be honored in everything that we do and everything that you do. So I just wanted to mention that before we get started. So we're we're looking at Romans chapter one verses eighteen through thirty-two, which is about the wrath of God and why God has issued His wrath. So there's a lot of, if you look down through this, there's a lot of fours and therefores in this and. And um, and so he's explaining uh, why God judges and and why God issues wrath and what God's wrath is. So 
let's uh, let's begin by reading that passage, Romans 1, 18 through 32. Sister Charlotte, please. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creatures rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Wow. Now that's a long passage. I understand that. But the passage that Paul actually wrote, the one single passage that he's writing with one single thought in mind, starts at verse 18 of chapter 1, goes to the end of verse 1, carries through all of chapter 2, and goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 19, and which is a much longer passage than what Sister Charlotte just read. So I'm actually being kind to you by only giving you that many verses. But but we want to understand the thought that Paul wrote in. And remember that they they uh they didn't they didn't have verse uh divisions or chapter divisions back when they wrote this, so it's just they kept attaching other uh parchments to the end of the part the scrolls would roll out and they came to the end of a scroll, they would attach another with leather thongs and they would just keep going out, or they would create another roll altogether. They didn't have books like we had. The, the first, the first books like we had were were right in the in the five uh, hundreds when they began to stack paper on top of each other and then bind them on the end like we know of today. But 
um, in Romans 1, chapter 18, verses 3 through 18, the apostle explains why God had to do the two things that he speaks about in verse 19 of chapter 3. I'm on top of page 2 right now. God clothed them, closed the mouth of the entire world. And number two, God brought the entire world into accountability with himself. Paul is explaining why God had to do that. And so um, that's the subject of the other 62 verses. Now, I've divided the section that Sister Charlotte just read into four groups. Verses 18 and 19 is the first group. Verses 20 through 24 is the second group. Verses 25 through 27 is the third group. And verses 28 through 32 is the, is the fourth group. Now, that may not be the best way to divide it, but that's the way I've divided it. So what, what we're doing right now is a continuation of looking at two verses, verses 18 and 19. But, but go back to the front page. I want to show you something. Um, um, verse 21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So Paul is describing the, the, the condition of people. And then he look what he said in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals. So they made an exchange. They exchanged the glory. And then verse 24 begins with therefore, because that's true, therefore God gave them over. And then verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. So him, God giving them over is in response to the sin of their exchange. If you see that right. And so there's three, there's three giving overs. There's verse 24, there's verse 26, and then there's verse 28, where it says, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. That, this is called the judgment of abandonment. There's all kinds of judgments from God. There's cause and effect judgment. You do this, this is going to happen to you. You go out and you, you commit fornication and adultery with various people, you're going to get sick. And, and it's almost, hundred percent. And so I just read an article yesterday where there's a strain of syphilis that is just raging through uh, the the United States right now. And so here we are in the age of antibiotics at the tail end of the age of antibiotics where everybody understands mentally that if you do commit adultery and fornication on a continual basis with various partners, you're going to get sick. You're going to get sick. And, and, and it is so common today that it's hard to even watch the news at night without an advertisement for medication to treat sexually transmitted diseases, which I really, and they've got, they've got medicine for AIDS, and then they show two men kissing on the advertisement or two women kissing or whatever. And so the, we're, we're living in quite a day when, when this is all becoming normalized and accepted and promoted and loved and admired and, and, and even people who don't agree with it are being punished in this country. We, the United States now is becoming the largest exporter of sexual immorality to around the world that there exists. You know, we're, we're about to go to war with Russia because Russia's bad. Well, they don't allow this in Russia. They don't allow this in Uganda. And, and but they allow it in the United States. And, and so we're, as a, as a, as a, in other words, if you want if you want foreign aid from the United States, you have to allow 
sexual immorality to exist in your nation. And so we are exporting it to other nations. And so we are, we've become the largest exporter of sexual immorality in the history of mankind. And so it's wrong. It's, it's evil. And, and God won't bless this. And this is why even the Roman Catholic Church has designated Joe Biden as an enemy of the Church of Jesus Christ. He is promoting more evil, more sin, more wickedness, and the Catholic Church there in Washington, D.C. will not give him communion, which they shouldn't. They should have done that a long time ago, But and, and Nancy Pelosi and a bunch of them that promote sinful things. Yes? The Catholic Church, the main Catholic Church, they're allowing all of this now. They want to put everybody in the church, and so they're, they're, they're not... It's just going to turn into a mess. You know, what is that Catholic Church overseas, the big one? St. something. St. Peter's Basilica? Yeah. They're, they've already come across they're going to let everybody in. Now you let people come in here, but you they have to not do the things they want to do when they come in this church. Right. And that's a good thing. Have you seen that on the news about that one? Well, I've been following this for decades how that the uh the pope what, what's going on in the vatican has been going on for decades where in, in the daytime they'll give you communion and at nighttime they have homosexual uh parties and it's, that's been going on for decades and that's one of the reasons why the the guy right before this guy i can't remember the name but anyway this guy's francis the guy right before francis benedict Anyway, he, he left because he said, I can't fix this. It's so embedded in the Vatican. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about in the Vatican. It's so embedded. And the people that are in the Vatican are doing this. There's a video on YouTube, not on YouTube, on Netflix or Prime about how prevalent it is and how they've ruined people's lives. So we see that this obviously is about sexual immorality and about homosexuality and about lesbianism and and but it's there's a cause behind it and it's it's because and look at look at it's it's frightening when you stop and think about it um verse 28 and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge god any longer god gave them over to a depraved mind why did he do that to do those things which are not proper so so God gave them over. In other words, they kept saying, well, can I do this? God said, no. Can I do this? God said, no. Can I do this? God said, no. Then they said, can I do this? Go ahead and do it. That's what that means. God's giving them over. Go do what you want to do. Now, you're not going to, you, you didn't change the fact that God's going to damn you. That's not changed. But God's just not going to deal with you anymore. God's not going to bring conviction into your life. You, you think you're fine. You're happy. You can be prosperous. You can be uh walk around whistling and singing all day long and be and be cursed by God. And so this this particular pair of, of, of passage does not talk about the sin that God will then judge later on. This is the judgment. When you see these things becoming prevalent and promoted and accepted, that is the judgment of God because God has turned them over to a depraved mind. And, and, uh, so there's no conviction. And so it's more important than ever before that we don't go along with this. Uh, that is why I, in our doctrinal statement, we, we very clearly state that we believe and teach that there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. God has already defined marriage and it, you don't have the right to redefine it. 
And so we do not acknowledge any marriage between people of the same sex. I don't care how loving or faithful they are to each other. That's irrelevant to me. Marriage, by definition, is an earthly, tangible, visible, physical sign of the mystery between Christ and his church. And so the man is represented, representing Jesus Christ, and the woman is representing the church. And, and so there is a feminine nature, and there is a masculine nature, and then there are roles in this life and on this earth and in the church, and as far as that goes in, in the society as well, be based on those two distinct natures. And I, I told everybody from this pulpit when all this was going on, and, and the Supreme Court of the United States allowed homosexual marriage. I said, this is not the end. There is no limit to the depravity that men can fall into. There's no floor. You can go further and further and further, deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness and into the sin. There is a, a limit to how high you can rise in your own efforts. You cannot reach heaven in your own efforts. Um, you need the grace of God to, 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 to reach heaven, but, but there's no floor. You can go down further, a lot further. And so now the confusion is what's, what's a man, what's a woman. If I was a woman, I'd be outraged because this is the elimination of a class of, of human beings called women. And it's an attack against a female, the female nature, femininity and, and woman in general. And so, this is it's starting in the sports world, but it's not going to stop there. And so I'd be outraged, and I wouldn't tolerate And I am outraged, even though I'm not a woman. So we, this is the result of God giving them over to the depraved mind. And, and, and so we are not... In a, let me just say it this way. This, this sin of, of God, this, this judgment of, of, of abandonment is not going to be fixed by voting a different person into office. This is going to require repentance. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know how to say this delicately, but you've got one man that is immoral and you've got another man that is amoral. Neither one of them are moral. An amoral man couldn't care less about morality either way. He just wants what works. So he'll, he'll allow homosexuality because it's not an issue with him. An immoral man will promote what is evil. So you, you, the two candidates in 2020, one was immoral and one was amoral. Neither one of them are moral. And so I don't know what's going to happen. But when, when the good guy is bad, like Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so that's where we are right now. So I'm going to look at the first section that we're in right now, Romans 1, 18 through 19. So Sister Colleen, I want to read that past, that, that those two verses all over again before we get into uh, where we are on page 7. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Okay. Now, you see, I hope you can, 
You come to church here for any length of time and you're going to begin to understand how words matter. Words matter. God could have written the Bible with pictures, but he didn't. He wrote it with words. And so God used very ordinary common men who were all sinners, who were all saved by grace, and God used them to write the scriptures. But God also took very ordinary tools of language, like nouns and verbs and pronouns and, and adverbs and adjectives and prepositional phrases that we use all the time in other books and other writings, and God used them in a way that they're inspired. And they, 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 when we read them correctly and we read them and understand them, they convey to us the truth of God into our minds and into our hearts. And that's why words matter. You don't, you can't just go and redefine words. They took the word gay that meant happy and now it means sexually perverted. They didn't have the right to do that. And so I don't use that word. I use the clinical term homosexual or I use sexually perverted or sexual deviance because that's, that's describes what it is. And there's nothing happy about being at odds with God. And so that's what these two passages are about. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against what? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because, for, because that which is known about God is evident within them. God wrote it on their heart. They know they're wrong. For God made it evident to them. He's, he's just. He will not damn somebody who doesn't know. He doesn't make people sin because then he would be complicit in their evil and he'd have to judge himself. Now, from those two verses come a couple of questions, three or four questions. What is the wrath of God? How is God's wrath against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness? Number three, how do men suppress the truth in unrighteousness? What does verse 19 teach? Verse 19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So that's what we're explaining right now is, number one, what is the wrath of God on page three? And we're looking at different uh, things like uh, the top of page four. Wrath is also called in the Bible indignation 31 times. It's also called retribution four times. Those are all from the same original word. But then there's another word that God uses for wrath, which is anger, and it has to do with the flaring of the nostrils. And I knew when my dad was like that, and I've seen animals get like that. If you look at a dog that's fixing to bite you, you'll see his eyes change and his nostrils will flare because he's processing this in whatever kind of mind he's got, and he's judging the situation to make sure he can come out ahead, and then that's when he attacks. And that's when animals attack. If you look in their eyes and you look at their nose, this is what animal trainers will always tell you. You can always tell when a, a, a lion's fixing to jump on you or, or whatever. And that's why rabies is so terrible because rabies te- tears the mind up and they'll just bite you no matter what. And you can't tell. Then vengeance is also from another word that's called the execu- execution of judgment. So, um, we're going to look at five biblical truths about the wrath of God. A is on page four is God's wrath is just. That's one of the main things I want you to get from this is that God's wrath doesn't just exist. God's wrath is right. It's just. 
Uh, bottom of page five, God's wrath shows that God is serious about sin. When you, when you, when you see, and this is, this is true with a baby, a child, uh, the army, church, any organization, you have an unruly member and you don't stop it. You walk around, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Well, you're not qualified to lead then because you can't allow unruliness to, to, to run the, the gamut. And, and so recently, the uh, superintendent of education of Harrison County Schools, a young boy wanted to wear a dress to his graduation. And the, and the guy said, no, you're not going to do that. And he went to federal court and won. So praise God for that. And, and uh, I don't, it doesn't matter what you want. You're not going to be allowed to do everything you want. And so discipline is a part of life. I can't drive as fast as I want to down the roads. I'm told to slow down. My right foot is getting sanctified little by little. And, and um, I think that we ought to adopt the laws that Germany has about driving, that if you're Everybody's going in the same direction, and and you're not going to be dangerous or crazy or stupid. Then it shouldn't matter how fast you go. But uh, like the autobahn is, you have to drive seventy on the autobahn, or they're going to give you a ticket. So you can drive one hundred and fifty on the autobahn if you want to, and and that's the way it ought to be over here. But but the law says no, and you drive through a neighborhood. A child might run out in the street chasing a ball. I know I did when I was living on the street. I ran after that. I didn't look for cars. I almost got killed several times because of that. So uh, you stop the unruly member. You don't allow it to all go on and fester and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You stop it. And then on the top, middle of page six, there's C, there's God's wrath is to be feared and what that means. We just finished that. And so at the, at the bottom third of page seven, we have the next one that God's wrath is consistent in both the Old and the New Testaments. That's where I want to start this morning. It is common to think of the Old Testament God as mean, harsh, and wrath-filled, and the God of the New Testament is kind, patient, and loving. Neither of those these portraits are representative of Scripture's teaching on God or His wrath. We find immensely fearful descriptions of the wrath of God in both the Old and the New Testaments. Here's a few examples. Brother Don, look at Jeremiah 30, 23 and 24. Behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. So to the degree that God is determined to save his chosen, that is to the degree that God is determined to judge all unrepentant sin. God is white hot in his passion to save all of those that he chose from before the foundation of the world. And God is white hot in his desire to judge and damn all unrepentant sin. It's the same degree. So Sister Terry, look at Nahum chapter 1 verses 2 through 15. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. 
and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. This is, this is the passage where Oprah Winfrey was sitting in church and heard the preacher read this passage, and she, she turned away from the God of the Bible. And she said, my God is not a God of jealousy and wrath. My God is a God of love. Therefore, the Bible is wrong because it talks about God's jealousy and God's wrath. So that makes the Bible to be wrong. That's the logic that people use. Brad Pitt was raised in a Baptist church. Kevin Costner sang in a choir in a Baptist church and raised in church by evidently godly parents. All of these people had godly, loving parents that raised their children in church. And they, they understand the ways of God, and they understand the truth of God. Now, Brad Pitt says he's an atheist now, and Oprah, which is the most unintellectual, anti-intellectual, unsmart thing anybody can ever do is be an atheist, because you have to deny what you're looking at. So that's just dumb. But Oprah Winfrey has now created her own religion. She has adopted the religion of New Age, and she's not a Christian. And, and so she's always trying to get people to, to, uh, have this God of love and God of beauty and God of peace and God of gentleness and God of kindness. And so she leaves out, she's not leaving out wrath, she's leaving out righteousness. That's the issue. Wrath is a byproduct of God's righteousness. Sorry, go ahead. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Now, I'm going to show you an example. I'm sorry, Sister. I'm going to really let you read this. Um, this is an example of why you have to get into the mind of the writer and not use your own wisdom and your own experiences to determine what the Bible means. The end of verse 4 says, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. What does that mean? But, but what are the blossoms? See, what was Lebanon known for? The cedar trees. That's on their flag. They're not there anymore. They're all cut down. Been cut down for hundreds of years. But back then, the cedars of Lebanon the Bible uses this as an example of God's strength and might. In another place, when the wind blew through the cedars, the, the, the limbs of the trees would clap their hands in, in praise to God. And so the strength of Lebanon, when it talks about the strength of Lebanon, it was their trees. It wasn't their missiles or their tanks or their bullets. It was the trees. And so the blossoms of Lebanon is when the trees blossomed every year. And it was a gorgeous sight. It was a breathtaking sight. And they were by the water, by the Mediterranean Sea. And so you could see them from ships. And they were magnificent trees. They were huge and they were magnificent. And so we don't know anything about that now. So a guy in the 21st century American church reads that and he's talking about, well, blossoms wither. God's, God, God's going to cause the blossoms to wither. And he misses the whole context of things. So I, I, I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? 
His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good. Now, isn't that a strange statement to talk about in the midst of all this anger, wrath, and 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 uh, indignation? Now it says in verse uh, seven, "The Lord is good." Is he is he is he brain dead? Is this guy? Is, is, this, is this out of context? I mean, what? The Lord is good. See, they didn't consider the wrath of God to be bad. It's bad if it was against me, but it was correct. When the wrath of God is being poured out, obviously, it needed to be poured out. Now, from that truth came a perverted doctrine that anytime anything bad happens to you, as we determine what is bad, it's because you're wicked and God's mad at you. And so by the first century, when Jesus dealt with the man born blind from his mother's womb, the only thing the Pharisees cared about was who to blame. That's all they cared about. They were trying to find whose fault was it, his fault or his parents. Somebody did something terrible for this bad thing to have happened. And they forgot what Moses wrote in Genesis or Exodus, who made man's mouth, who made the blind, who made the dumb, who made the lame. Have not I the Lord? And so congenital defects, birth defects from birth is not a sign of God's damnation, but God did that. Now, why would God give me a... a, 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 a disabled child. If God loved me, why would he make my life harder? Why would he make this baby have a hard, difficult life? What's the point? Isn't it better if God healed the baby? Wouldn't it be better if that baby never was born than to live a defeated, disabled, terrible life? And, and, And over here in the United States, we've got laws that actually uh, I find it fascinating because anything man does has got problems with it. So they passed this law about dis- disabled people. George H.W. Bush did this, the Disabilities Act. So you've got all these parking spots by the front door reserved for handicapped people so they don't have to walk as far as we walk because we're not disabled. That's the logic behind it. But then they put the pharmacy at the back of the store. So they still got to walk all the way through the store to the back of the store to get to the pharmacy, which is insane. So it, it never works out right. But, but, but so what, why would God and his, why would a loving, kind, merciful, almighty, sovereign God want my baby to be born with a cloud over her eyes? What's, what's the point to just make me and Rhonda work harder? Cause that's what we had to do. We had to work very hard. She was sick all the time with just normal sicknesses because her body wasn't strong. Then she was born with a heart defect and she contracted leukemia. And then she died. What was all that about? Anybody want to take a stab? Well, they would say that this is the bad answer. They would say it's God's glory. Well, how was that to God's glory? See, I agree with that. That's that's one of them. I'm glad you said that. So God was not just dealing with the babies, dealing with me. Now the baby's in heaven right now. She was six and a half when she died. She's fine. She'd not complain. She wouldn't come back here for all the money in the world. And 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 I'll I will go to her, she will not come to me. But you know, you listen to her at night, she's grinding her teeth because she's hurting so bad. And I can't I can't fix this. 
and I'm repenting of everything back to the Civil War because I don't know what I've done wrong for God to do this. Why doesn't God heal my child? Why Does he want her to just die a horribly painful, slow death? And, and it was horrible, and it was painful, and it was slow. It was agonizing. So now we come on the other side, and you're exhausted, and you're trying to recover, and you're totally defeated if you don't understand the Bible because you lost. Obviously, she was six and a half when she died, and, and she never even understood what was wrong. She was, got, had Down syndrome. She didn't understand why she was hooked up to all these wires and all this tubing. And, and the baby praised the Lord. She spoke phonetically. We played songs. We had a real high-tech system. We had a cassette tape, and then when it got to the end, it flipped over. That was real high-tech back then. And it's 24 hours, 24-7, we played Christian, godly music in her room. And she would, she would, she would do this in her bed and, Oh, and she spoke phonetically, how great thou art, like that. And that's all she knew. And, and so she's in the, in the, we brought her to church with the ivy pole and her little bald head and got set at the back of the church. And she's back there going, glory! And, and, uh, and, and love, love Jesus and praise God, you know? And, and, and the, that, that episode was, fundamental in me leaving the Pentecostal movement because of its false teaching and coming into the Reformed faith and understanding that there are times when it is God's will to heal and to bless and to get you out of trouble and do for you. And there are times when it's not God's will. And in those times when it is not God's will to do that, God will be faithful to strengthen you through the trial because God is not just honored when the trial is over. God is honored during the trial. So I quit saying that God, that I am what I am in the Lord in spite of my trials. I am what I am in the Lord because of my trials. They were sent to me by God, a loving God, precisely because he knew what would hurt me the most. And because he hurt me and wounded me so deeply it caused me to realize that what I was being taught and what I was believing wasn't even biblical. And it made it forced me to change. And, and so I think that every Christian on earth today needs to develop a biblical theology of suffering and death because it is part of this life in one way or another, whether it's cancer or, or criticism. You're going to go through suffering. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to have rocks thrown at you. You're going to be stabbed. You're going to be shot at. You're going to be name called. You're going to be shunned. Or you're going to go through cancer of the liver or whatever, and you're going to either die or get better. And you need to live well to God's glory. You need to suffer well to God's glory, and you need to die well to God's glory because this life is not the best life that you can have. There is something beyond death that is either much, much, much better or much, much, much worse, which you're going to spend somewhere in eternity. And 
I plead with you that you will be saved and repent and love Jesus and, and have the most unbelievable joy. I just, I don't know where I've been the first 35 years of my ministry. I just didn't pay any attention to the words about joy and love and satisfaction and hope. I just escaped all that. I was going to the big stuff like mighty and power and glory. And, and I've never had a more sweeter experience with the Lord than I have now. The tenderness of God and the sweetness of Jesus is so nice. And it changes you. And it allows you to weep over people's sin rather than just get mad at them. We have to stop sin. We can't let in, injustice or evil triumph. So we have to stop it. But when we go out to stop sin, you, those are not our enemies. It's our mission field. And it, the only reason they're doing this is because they don't know Jesus. And if they knew Jesus, they'd be with us. So let's 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 do that. But but um, there was a Saturday, and my my daughter had this old fashioned. The University Medical Center Ch Children's Hospital had the old equipment that people didn't want in the in the main hospital because it was they were running on a shoestring budget. So they had the old type of IV poles. Uh, machines where it would force the liquid through your through your body even if the needle had come out if the needle had come out of the vein and it was in your arm your arm would swell up like Popeye because the, the machine didn't know that the needle was out and that happened to her several times very painful but um a particular Saturday, she had heart monitors beeping and she had the IV line. It would go to a certain place and go. And you remember that sound in the heart, my beep, 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 beep. And those are the sounds of hospitals, right? And you got the liquid going through the IV line and you got all this stuff going on Saturday. And I think I had like a dollar seventy-five to my name. And back then you had to pay to park. You had to pay to park at the hospital. And it cost me like, I don't know, a dollar to get out of the parking lot. And I told Joy, I said, Joy, she goes, eh? I said, we're going to turn this place into the Father's glory. She said, glory to God, glory to God. So I got in my car and I left the parking lot and I now got about 75 cents to my name. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I'm driving down Jackson. I don't even know where I'm going. And I saw a music store. And I stopped in the music store. And they had one of these harmonicas for like 50 cents. And with tax, it was 60, you know, whatever. And so I had, I had change. I had enough to get an order of fries. And and uh, small order. And and uh, so I started playing on the harmonica. And, and by the end of the day, I was doing okay with sweet hour of prayer and tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and amazing grace. And here, here my daughter's dying. Here I am totally broke and no hope. She's dying. I can't fix her. And I'm laying in there playing about tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And I opened the door because the bathroom was at the end of the hall with a shower that was mildewed. 
and the hallway was lined with wheelchairs with these children. They had heard me playing, and they came to the sound. They were attracted to the sound. And a little girl named Aurora was there, a 12-year-old girl. She had the same. There's only like, I don't, I'm trying to remember. I think it was 12. There's like 12 people in the whole country that had the same kind of leukemia that my daughter had. It was the rarest kind. And Aurora was one of those. So there's two in the same hospital. And she was bleeding through her nose and through her ears and through her bowels because she, she used to have real long. She could sit on her hair so long, just jet black, straight as a board, half Filipino, half American. Daddy never showed up to even find out whether his daughter was alive or dead. And mom was, doesn't know what to do. She's crying. These people are holding their children in their arms and in wheelchairs, and they're crying because they hear me playing. And I prayed with that child, and she got saved. And we had kind of a lengthy discussion about how to baptize her because I wanted to baptize her. And I called all over the place to Jackson. Nobody would touch her with a 50-foot pole because they didn't want the liability because if she got a head cold, she'd just burn up with 116-degree fever and die because she had no immune system. And uh, there's a black church there. I, I can't remember the name of it, but I can take you there. And they had a van, too, that was handicapped. And uh, so they came, picked her up. We all went to, the, and I baptized wheelchair and all in this baptistry. And uh, everybody was praising God, and she was praising God, and and then she died. And and that was a, so, you know, you sit there and go, you know, all this, all this violence and all this terrible stuff going on and children dying and all that. And all of a sudden, God is good. And in the midst of that salvation, and that's what I think about when you just talk about all this anger and violence and wrath, and and then in verse 7, the Lord is good. I mean, it's amazing. At the same time that all this is going on, God is good. People get saved in hurricanes. So why would God tear up the coastline? People get saved in hurricanes. People die in hurricanes and stand before God and are judged. But everybody is humbled for at least a little while. Go ahead. I'm sorry, sister. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What does that mean? Yeah, if, you, if you're an enemy of God, God will chase you down. He won't let you just run off. He will chase you down and get you in the darkness. That's, wow. He is determined to damn all unrepentant sinners to the same degree he is determined to save all of those that God has chosen. Same determination. Wow. Go ahead. Sorry. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like what does that mean? It won't rise up twice. Because the first time it rises up, he's going to destroy you. You won't have time to have be distressed twice. Keep going. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. Now, right in the middle of that line, you have a capital A for as. You see that? Mm -hmm. You know why that's like that? Because this is poetry. And as was on a different line. 
That's why you see that all the time in the Bible where you have a capital word in the middle of a sentence. You go, what in the world is that? That's not right. It's a line break. It's the line break. Keep going. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from you, from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the, from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Now, verse 15, where do you remember that? That those words. In Romans ten, where it says, Blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. So, Brother Vern, look at the book of the Revelation, chapter fourteen, verses seventeen through twenty. What is the book of Revelation about? Jesus. That's right. So if whatever you think about Jesus, if you don't include how the book of the Revelation describes him, you have an incomplete portrait of Jesus. So it's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of 666. It's not the revelation of the mark of the beast. It's not the revelation of the army surrounding Jerusalem. It's the revelation of Jesus the Christ. For the first several hundred years of church history, what did they call the book of the Revelation? They didn't call it the book of the Revelation. And see, it's not revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus the Christ. Yeah. Actually, the full title is the revelation of Jesus Christ by St. John the Divine. Yeah. So what would they call it? <laughs> call it the apocalypse. The apocalypse. So when you have writings... Your ancient writing, I'm, I'm reading uh, Philip Schlaff's, Schaff's history of the Christian church. And he's talking about the early, 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 early church and how they developed their creeds and how they developed orthodoxy and how they sang and how they sat in church and how they conducted services and different things. And it mentions the, and the, and, and St. John said in the apocalypse, the apocalypse, the apocalypse, it called it the apocalypse because it's cataclysmic judgment. Keep going. And another angel came out of the temple, which was in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. And another, then another angel, the one who has power over fire, fire came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress 
up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That's a lot of blood. So, you know, growing up as a child, you know, my parents had books. We read, uh, we watched TV a little bit, but we basically were a family that read. So I'm growing up and I'm reading The Grapes of Wrath. That's a book. And they made a movie out of it with Henry Fonda in it. And, I, you know, and you hear phrases like his knees smoke together or see the writing on the wall or uh, there's not one iota difference between the two. All of these little phrases came from the scriptures. And the grapes of wrath is the, is the wine press of the wrath of God where he squeezes the grape until the liquid of the grape gushes out. That's the blood of human beings. I mean, it's, you know, you, that's, not, that's not wrath. The blood goes up to the horse's bridle for the distance of 200 miles. That's not wrath. So don't tell me the New Testament is full of love and joy and the Old Testament is full of wrath. Both of them's got wrath. Both of them's got love. All right, D, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. This is a harder sell. God's wrath is actually his love. Well, yeah, it's his love for his own glory or his own righteousness. So, Putting it in legal terms, whereas God is love and God does all things for his glory, whereas God loves his glory above all, whereas God rules the world in such a way that brings himself maximum glory, therefore, God must act justly and judge all sin by responding with wrath. Otherwise, God would not be God. If God did not judge all sin, he would be agreeing with sinners that his glory was not worth defending. You talk to people about the Lord and they, they, they act as though they can take it or leave it. That it's up to them whether they're going to buy into this or reject it. So they, they have flippant comments that they make and your heart just weeps for these fools that act like that because they're going to, they're going to be damned. And then you hear people take a verse like God will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able to bear, but will with that temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it, which was comfort to save people written for save people to take comfort in the, in the temptations of sin. And they say they twist it up and they water it down until it's God will never put more on you than you can handle. Well, yeah, he will all the time. He, he does that even to save people. I say, I used to say, well, he'll do that. He won't do that to save people. Yeah, he will, because he'll change you so you can handle it. But hell is more than you can handle. Everybody in hell doesn't want to be there. Everybody in hell would give everything they had for five minutes to come back and get saved. They're all believers. They believe the Bible's true. They believe Jesus is Lord. They believe everything that Jesus ever said is right. And they believe in damnation. The book of the Revelation says that when God begins to pour out the wrath upon the earth, that people will not repent, but they'll shake their fist at God. And this is what people do all the time. Their baby gets sick and they get mad at God. Their baby dies, they get mad at God. They lose their job, they get mad at God. Their air conditioner quits work and they get mad at God. 
the car blows up, they get mad at God. Their husband leaves, they get mad at God. Now, it's fascinating. I knew a medical doctor, and I did work with him, and he said he loved the Lord. And then I went to him, and I said, how's your relationship with him? He said, we're not on speaking terms. I never heard anybody talk like that. I said, what? He said, I'm, I'm bent out of shape at him. I said, well, how's that working out for you? I mean, that's the dumbest thing anybody could do. So in my agony, in my trial, in my misery, and I'm just laying on the floor, and I don't even know how to pray. I have no, I don't even know the words to say. And I'm hurt and, and mad and, and bewildered and confused and all of that put together in one, at one time. And, and then I remembered what God said about Job. That he shaved his head, he rent his garments, he fell on the ground. That was the agony part. And then he worshiped. And he said, naked I came in here, and naked I will return thither. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's what I did. And that doesn't, that's, not, that's not to pat me on the back. I'm not saying that. When my baby died, I was in Jackson. Rhonda came up to Jackson. We drove all the way back without our, without our child this time. And the first place I wanted to go was the church. I'm a man of the church. And, and I've said this a long time ago in high school when I was first saved. When something terrible would happen to me, if I was if I was taking drugs, I'd take drugs right now. If I was a drinker, I'd be drinking right now. If I was a whatever, I'd be doing that right now. But I'm a Christian, and so what should how should I how should a Christian respond to terrible things? Well, he should worship. He should worship. And so I went in the church and I unlocked the door and I walked in and I grabbed the tambourine and I danced with all my might before the Lord, praising His name. And these people came to the front, it wasn't this church, but people came to the front door and they were standing there watching me and this woman was standing there and she said, are you happy? I said, are you a moron? I'm, I'm devastated, but God is good. His mercy, and nothing's changed about the Bible. And she just shook her head. She said, I, I ain't there. I said, well, maybe you need to get saved. Because I wasn't, I mean, where are you going? You said, well, I'm not just there. I'm not there just yet. Well, where are you? Where are you? Why, why would you be mad at God? Because he saved you? Job said, shall we receive good from the Lord and shall we not receive evil also? That's not evil in the, in the moral sense. It's evil in our eyes. I mean, in other words, the only thing I deserve is damnation. The only thing I've ever earned in my whole life, even since I've been saved, is damnation. Nobody has messed up being a pastor more than I have. Nobody's messed up preaching more than I have. Nobody's done it sideways, upside down, backwards and wrong than I have. And I don't know, I, I, I did the best I knew how to do at the time I was doing it. And when I found out that wasn't the right way to do it, I said, oops, sorry about that. Please forgive me. And I tried it another way. I didn't, I wasn't born with this knowledge. I had to acquire it. And, and you make mistakes along the way, don't you? About everything. About how to be a husband, about how to be a father. 
I'm 68 years old, and I've had six children, and I've got now 11 grandchildren, and yesterday afternoon, while I'm studying the Bible, I made a serious mistake with my two grandchildren. And it was just, it just, you know, <laughs> here I go again. And it's like, golly, when am I ever going to learn? And and I, they did something, and I blew up, and they looked at me like. And Rhonda said, "Whatever you're studying, please don't study that." <laughs> yeah, thank you, Lord, for my helpmate. You know, whatever whatever you're getting into, it's the wrong thing if it's going to make you act like that. <laughs> And I got no recourse. I can't, I can't, ah, I'm a man of God. You can't talk to me like that. She's right. And I've had to repent to two little children. And I don't even know if they understand why I'm repenting. But I don't want to be like that. And so I'm doing the same thing with them. You think you'd learn how to be a better parent from your mistakes you made with your own children. Not, not much. I haven't. And I told them how much I wanted them to love God. And, and, and uh, you know, after they went to sleep last night, Rhonda talked to me. She said, I love you and I believe in you. You were wrong. And you can't act like that. And I said, amen. I got, I got no. And that's the way you have to be. You, you, and then somebody comes to you and says, why would you preach like that? Why did you say this? Why did you say that? Why did you say that? I've learned through the years they might even they might not even have my best interest at heart. They may want to tear me down. They may want to destroy me. That's irrelevant. God, there's an element of truth to every single bit of criticism anybody ever gives you. Because you know you're not perfect. You know that. So well, I, I came across that way. I didn't mean to. That's not a good enough ex- explanation. Why did you then? And, and, and when you really start doing what the Bible tells you to do, you see, there's no good thing in me that is in my flesh. I mean, that's really true. That's not some, you know, I'm going to try to be humble this morning. No, it's true. And so when you think about this and you think, I get to go to heaven and the other people don't? Why? I'm better than them? Not by a long shot. That's why Jesus said that. Now, this morning in the message that I'm going to preach this morning, Jesus is just tearing down everything we can hope in. Just ruining it all. Why? Why? I mean, he's making it unnecessarily hard, it seems like. He's not. And so we got all these things we think about God, most of them not even in the Bible anywhere, and yet we really think this. And that's why I've told you before, when, when, I, when I die, I stand before God, and he said, why should I let you in here? You shouldn't. That's honest. I have, I have nothing to do with you or heaven. I am a, I born and I was conceived as a child of hell. 
I was rotten from the start. I got nothing in common with you or this place. Except that man, that man right there, your son, said if I believed in him and trusted him, I could come. He's not going, what's your, what's your doctrine on justification by faith alone? He's not going to ask me that. Explain to me the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not going to ask me that. Why should I let you in? He told me I could come. That's it. I got nothing else to go on. I really, 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 really tried hard, which is true. I'm really trying hard. I'm really trying hard. This is not a hobby for me. This is, I'm, I'm dead earnest about this. It's not good enough because it's not perfect. So what am I going to, what am I going to use? Uh, Mother Teresa said, I can only hope that God sees all of my labor and all of my work that I have done and uses that to let me into heaven. Wrong thing to, to trust in, lady. Now, I hope she didn't believe that. That's what she wrote in her diary. I didn't, you people, you're coming against Mother Teresa. Who do you think you are? I don't think I'm anybody. She didn't think she was saved. She didn't know. And she's in a church that tells her it's a sin if she did know. So, if God did not judge all sin, he would be agreeing with sinners that his glory was not worth defending. Every time I hear about an earthquake or a volcano or a car wreck or cancer or something bad, I'm, I'm amazed that it didn't happen to me. How did I escape that? Why would God not let the tidal wave come in Gulfport that came over to Indonesia? Because we're better than they are? Are you kidding me? So underneath it all, it is God's love for his own glory that motivates, produces, and manifests his wrath against sin. If God loves righteousness and glory that much that he damns people because they have offended it, it really must be valuable. I've got a bed and a clock and a lamp that my father bought for his mother in London, England in an antique store in 1942. The bed was made in 1857, the clock was made in 1875, and the lamp, I think the lamp was made in the 1850s as well. It was an antique in 1942. It's worth a lot. It's worth a lot of money. Why? Because it's rare. The word precious can mean something sweet or it can mean something rare. It's the rarity of it, the age of it, the value that is placed on it determines how much money you're going to put out to buy it. God damns people because they've offended his glory. What does that mean his glory is? Wow. It must really be something. Right? It is true that God's love for his own glory is a very sobering reality. But even though God's love for his own glory thrills the soul of the redeemed, it is not good news at all for unrepentant sinners. In fact, it is the worst news they could ever get. And that is why Hebrews 10 and 31 says that, Sister Charlotte. 
top of page nine. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The next section is God's wrath defends God's glory. When we sin, we insult God's glory. When we turn to sin or to things that have been made and are passing away for comfort and hope and joy, we are testifying that God and his glory aren't enough for us. When we embrace sin or when we run away from God or even when we seek for safety and security and what our own strength can give us, we are rejecting God and his glory. And there really isn't any way we could belittle God any more than that. And what I'm trying to illustrate by saying it like this is we think of sin as being a mass murderer or a pedophile or something like that and just rejecting God and his glory and saying that I get more out of my petunia garden than I do out of you. God, you can't insult God any more than that. And the petunia garden in, in, is, is not in and of itself sin. So you don't have to be wickedly, visibly, blatantly evil to be a wicked sinner and insult God's glory. And most people don't ever get into this. I have never been in another church that even talks about this. In my whole life, 52 years of being saved, I have never been in a church that talks about this glory like this. And yet, to me, it is the dominant theme in the whole Bible. When we embrace sin or when we run away from God or even when we seek for safety and security and what our own strength can give us, we are rejecting God and his glory, and there really isn't any way we could belittle God any more than that. So our sin insults God's glory. It rejects God and says that the only way we can be happy and satisfied and content and fulfilled is by turning away from God. There's, there's, a, there's a group of, of, of Christians, there's, a, there's a, a tradition of Christianity called holiness. And some people call it the holiness movement. Have you ever heard those words? Okay. And it was started by John Wesley in the seven, eight, seven, late 1700s. And it has morphed over the years into being all kinds of things. But there are actually churches in the county, in Harrison County, called holiness churches. You may have seen that sign. Okay, that's what that's talking about. Now, the sad part is most of those people have no idea what that means, and it's just a name. And the reason they go there is because Mama took them when they were a baby, and they've been going there their whole life. They don't know anywhere else to go. But they preach hard on sin, and they preach that you can't, you can't dip, chew, snort, swallow, or smoke, and you can't kiss girls that do, and you don't watch TV, and you don't, you wear long sleeve shirts, and women wear dresses below their knees, no makeup, no wedding rings, hair stacked on top of their head. Is it becoming more familiar? Okay. Now, I understand those people. I understand them very well. And there are many of them that are trying. And they, like the Amish, have been deceived into thinking that that's what holiness is. Now, the women all want to wear blue jeans real bad. And they can't. So they make skirts out of blue jean material, which is the closest they'll ever get to wearing a pair of blue jeans. They don't watch TV, but they just so happen 
to pass by where they've got a TV going. And it just so happens that they sit there and watch it. Now, they don't have one in their house, but they'll go to somebody else's house that's a lost sinner, and they'll watch TV at their house because they can't have one in their house because they're holy. The point I'm trying to make, I'm not making fun of them. I'm trying to tell you how, how they end up becoming hypocrites because they can't bear to live on the path that they've made for themselves. And they're on a treadmill, and it's going faster and faster. It's going higher and higher and higher. And these are some of the most miserable people on the face of the earth. And I was talking to some of them one day, and they, they looked down their nose at anybody that doesn't agree with them about this. And yet they themselves are so miserable they can't bear to live in it. And I asked them, I said, when you pass by a lost sinner, do you say, I wish he could be like me? And they said, yes. I said, but look, how, look at who you are. You're not happy. You're not content. You're miserable. You're scared to death that you're going to do something and get caught by the preacher or the elders and they're going to tell on you and you're going to get brought before the church because you, you, you looked at a TV program or you, your dress wasn't long enough or, you're, or you put on makeup or whatever. And I read Ezekiel 16 to one of them in a, in a store one time where God put an earring in his church's ear. God did that. If it's okay, God did it. It's okay for us to do it. You can be ostentatious, and that's wrong. You can show off, and that's wrong. The women of Ephesus had such elaborate hairstyles that some of them even had bird nests in their hair. That's fact. When God killed Ananias, it took three hours later for his wife to get there. I guess her hairstyle was such that Same service was going on three hours late. Y'all think I preach long. And for, for decades, my thinking was this. If God said it, I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter if it kills me. I don't care about what it does to me. I don't care if it makes me happy or not. I just want to do it because I'm supposed to. I thought that my joy and my happiness was irrelevant to God. And that is the furthest thing from the biblical gospel that you can get. It's, it's first cousin to a heresy. If you're not doing it because of joy, what is the basis by which you're willing to struggle and sacrifice your own inherent goodness so that people can look at you and say, boy, you sure are trying hard. You've got to have a motivation to do what you're doing. Well, it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But God Almighty gave us reasons to do what we do. Jesus used them himself for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He didn't endure the cross because he loved me that much. He endured the cross for the joy. Now, I'm caught up in that joy, yes. But he endured the cross, despising the shame, because of the joy that was set before him. So Jesus used those motivators just like we should use the motivators. Honor your mother and father. Why? So that it may be well with you and that your days may be long on the earth. Now, the days being long on the earth, I mean, you're going to live to a ripe old age. Necessarily, it means that you're going to, you're going to live forever because you're doing it because of your salvation. So it'd be well with you. So people say, well, God's going to bless you, Brother Blair. For, you don't know how much I'm counting on that. 
I believe in, 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 in doing things for the right reason now. And God wants me happier than I want to be happy. And I really want to be happy. When we were first married, there was a moment in our early marriage. And I told my wife, I'm not happy. This is not, this is not anything like I thought it was going to be. Something, something's wrong. And I knew that it wasn't supposed to be like that. So I was trying to figure out what it was. Well, one of the things, I was in the wrong church. That was one of the big things. Another thing, I didn't understand what marriage was for. Marriage is not about you and your soulmate. It's not about the two of you completing one another or anything like that. It's not even in the same universe as that. The only reason marriage exists at all is to represent God, Jesus, and his church. That's it. So I would suggest that the glory of God is everything to God. Well, then that brings up a question. What is it? If it's everything to God, I sure want to know about it. Well, I'm a, God created our mind in such a way that we learn what something is by learning what it's not. Okay. So our sin insults God's glory. It rejects God and says that the only way we can be happy and satisfied and content and fulfilled is by turning away from God. But what makes that so terrible is that God is not only the most powerful being in the universe, he's also the most lovely and the most beautiful and the most important and the most rewarding and the most satisfying and the happiest being that could ever be. God is the happiest being of all. God has got joy that you can't even comprehend, and it's 24-7, 365. He's never not happy. And so God never does anything that doesn't please him. He only does what pleases him. He only does what brings himself glory. And so if I'm smart, I'll get that in my head, and I'll start praying about the things that I know brings God glory, Right? But what if I don't know if it's going to bring God glory or not? How do I pray? Right. Because I don't know. It might not be. Now, I don't have to worry about it. He's not going to do it if it's not, his, not going to bring himself glory. Or he's not going to do it right now. Or he's not going to do it in the way I want him to do it. Something like that. So I've told people for decades now, it ain't going to work out like you think it will. Nothing usually does. Right? It's always a little twist or t turn in it, but it will work out. And you'll get on the other side and you'll look back and you'll say, God was there. In the first paragraph of the book of First John, and we know where John, John is. It said that he's on the Isle of Patmos and he's there because of his, his life and faith in Jesus. But it says, we saw him, we touched him, Amen. we heard him. Amen. And so everything that John had gone through had taught him. And then it goes on to say that you listen, you take in this word, you take what we're saying, and that joy comes. So all John had been through, being boiled in oil, and it couldn't kill just, him. They, the man wouldn't die. Because God wasn't through with it. Right. 
So that that gives us a peace. Right. That we're not going. But he said, all of that, you take it and you listen. We were there. And that brings about the joy. That's in the last sentence of that first paragraph. Amen to that. My dad used to tell me all the time how how, how has, I was so hard-headed. I mean, you're hard-headed. You're hard-headed. Well, that came in handy in my second wreck in 2019 when that beam hit me in the head. And it hit my arm, and I'm sitting there in the car. I'm, I, the first thing I thought of, for God, the first thing I thought of, there's a terrorist bomb. Now, I don't know why they want to blow up a car wash, but that's the first, because the car was doing this, and also this explosion and all this. And I couldn't see out this way because all the stuff was down on top of my car, and I couldn't see out the window. I didn't know what was going on. And this lady came over the side there, and she said, are you still alive? I said, yes, ma'am. And she pulled me out, and I thought it was important for me to tell her, God's not through with me. I can't die. And she said, oh, you can die, baby. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to die until God's finished with me. And the ambulance came because I thought I broke my arm, and my neck sideways, sticking out that way. And and the ambulance came pick me up, and the guy asked me about my symptoms and all that. And I looked at him, and I said, I'm, I'm in the safest place in all the world. I'm in the hands of God. He said, yeah, well, that's good, but you need us too. And I said, I can't die until God's finished with me. And I was going to say, and I can't stay if God's through with me. But he didn't let me say, oh, you can die. Don't be arrogant. I said, it's not arrogance. And I talked about John. The man wouldn't die. They boiled him in oil, he didn't die. They banished him to Patmos, he didn't die. He died an old man supposedly that's what i've read the only one and it wasn't his fault i mean he tried to get martyred and they wouldn't god wouldn't let him get martyred so when we rebel against god we trample under our feet with disgust the very thing that god loves the most his glory and so god must defend what he is what has been attacked he must satisfy the debt of sin that has occurred by us rebelling against him and he does that by judging the sin in the fury of his wrath and the sinner, unless he repents. The next one, F, the knowledge of God's wrath encourages saved people to modify their behavior. Yeah, it does. Because the ironic thing about hell is the only people who believe in hell are the people that's not going. Part of what it means to be lost is they do not fear God. So, Sister Colleen, look at Romans 3, 9 through 19. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Read 19 now. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed 
and all the world may become accountable to God. What does he mean? That every mouth may be closed. Right. In other words, we're, 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 we're saying, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. I give to the Red Cross. I help little ladies cross the street. I mow my neighbor's yard. I do nice things all the time. I'm not that bad. And this truth closes your mouth. It's actually the law of God that closes your mouth. You think you're a good person. So if there is a God and if there is a heaven, I'm sure I'm going because I'm so good. That's the logic that a lot of people have. That's their, that's what they're basing their eternal soul on. That kind of silliness. So then you have to prove to them that they're not good. And yes, they will be insulted. And yes, they'll get mad at you. And yes, they'll respond to that anger by lashing out at you probably. But until they realize they're not good, they're going to be continue to be deceived. So you use the law of God, Ten Commandments. And you say, have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, what does that make you? A thief. Have you ever lied? Yes, what does that make you? A liar. Have you ever blasphemed God? Yes. What does that make you? A blasphemer. So you're a lying, thieving blasphemer. That's not good. So why would God allow a lying, thieving blasphemer to go to heaven? You said you were. You, you condemned yourself. And so people try to get out of this. Well, that doesn't make me a sinner. It makes me human. Okay, it makes you a sinful human. And that's what the law is for. The law will not save anybody. It never is not, it's not designed to save anybody. It is designed to tell us how bad we are. That's the bad news, so that the good news is very good indeed. So the fear of God is best understood not as being scared to death of God, but as a reverential respect of God. But the saved do fear God, and they fear hell, and they fear judgment. And so the irony of this is that the only people who fear God in eternal damnation are the ones who will never be judged by God. Because the saved love God, they want no part of his judgment. They only seek his approval of all they do. And so this reverential respect for God and his wrath empowers the saved to modify their behavior. The next one is God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus Christ. But even though all of this is true in the very center of God's wrath, we find the ultimate good news. Brother Don, look at 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And then Sister Terry, Romans three twenty four through 26. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his right- righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this one, two, three verses. These three verses transformed my life. And it started out because I didn't understand what he was talking about. Because being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his love toward man. This was to demonstrate his mercy and grace toward us. This was to demonstrate how much he cared about us. No, it doesn't say that. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. And I'm saying, what? 
How does Jesus dying on the cross demonstrate his righteousness? Why is Jesus dying on the cross? To pay for sins, to absorb the wrath of God, so I don't have to. Well, why is God angry? Because of my sins. That's the righteousness of God. And then in verse 26, he said, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. Now, this tells me that 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this, people didn't get it then either. People didn't understand what he was talking about then either. And so he had to repeat. And for the demonstration, I say, of his right, he wanted to make sure because they know that we're saying, yeah, I know, Paul, but it's about his love. It's about his mercy. It's about his grace. Though this is to demonstrate, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Because I didn't... Uh, look at the end of 25, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously, previously committed. What? When did he ever pass over anything? So David sins and Nathan comes and puts his finger in his face and said, you're the man. And David said, God, forgive me. And Nathan said, your sins are forgiven. He didn't kill an animal. He didn't kill, he didn't, he didn't slay an animal. He didn't sacrifice. On what basis did Samuel, uh, did, did Nathan say that? That's right here. He, God passed over the sins previously committed. So, so the word just at the end of 26 is the same word for righteousness. If you were just, you are righteous. Justification is about us becoming righteous. Part of justification is the forgiveness of our sins, but that doesn't, that's enough. That's 50% of the deal. He also has to make us perfectly righteous in addition to forgiving our sins. But wait a minute, we're still going to sin after he's done this. So he has to forgive all of our sins, even the ones we haven't committed yet. And if that makes you arrogant, then you're, you're not saved. You don't understand it correctly. So that he would be just and the justifier, the one who has faith. That's the only reason you get to go to heaven. is because other than that, God is unrighteous by forgiving you. And this is why I ask people all the time. Has, do you know anybody? Have you ever heard anybody think that God was being too merciful to people? We don't even think like that in America. I mean, we wish he was more merciful. Gimme, 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 right? But back in the first century, Paul was deeply concerned that the, that the forgiveness of God and, and making guilty sinners righteous would pollute God's own righteousness. That's why he wrote Romans. That's why righteousness is the greatest theme in Romans is because that's what Paul was concerned about. He was a Jew of the Jew. He understood the law. He understood the, the prophets. He understood the Old Testament. And he understood what it said that if a guilty, if a judge frees a guilty man, the judge becomes partaker of his sins. Every sin must be punished. That's a principle that God laid down a long time ago. Nobody gets away with anything. You might get away with it today. You might get away with it for a month or a year or a decade. You might even get away with it for your entire life. But you don't get away with it because then you'll stand before God. So nobody gets away with anything because sin has to be punished. It can't be swept under the rug. God can't just say, I forgive everybody. And everybody goes to heaven. It's not like that because he's sweeping sin under the rug. His righteousness has been offended. His glory has been trampled on. God must then defend his righteousness and his glory by judging sin. But if he judges sin, how do I go to heaven? Because I'm guilty. 
And that's where Jesus came in. That's why Jesus had to scream in agony on the cross. So you talk to people all the time and they say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's wonderful that you know that. What does that mean? And they, most of them don't know what that means. Well, I'm, I'm a sinner and Jesus died because I'm a sinner. Why? What does that got to do with anything? And, and, and we got to understand something else. When Jesus died on the cross, there was no music playing in the background. There was no dramatic effect where the camera panned to everybody's face. It was just a blip on the screen. Uh, the emperor of Rome heard about it. Good. A rabble rouser got killed. An itinerant preacher got killed. Big deal. It was the end of his entire empire. And this, this man that nobody thought was, was of any value now rules the world and rules the heavens. And, 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 and it, it's fascinating when you stop and think about it because it was the most obscure. Why didn't he go to Jerusalem? Why wasn't he born as a king? Why, why did he have to be born in a stable and in, in a, in a little village and, and be rejected? Who, how dare people reject Jesus? He owned it all. And, and we don't think about this because we're thinking about our own personal sin. But if Jesus walking on the ground, the dirt got on his feet. How, you, how do we allow the dirt to get on the Son of God's feet? We should be bathing his feet every step he takes, kissing his feet every step he takes. And over there is a child that's starving to death. Over there is a child that's been raped all night. There's a leper over here. There's a dead man. There's a hole in the middle of the road where somebody dug a well, but they come up with a dry well. I mean, it was a brutal, hard, vicious, mean, un, unjust, cruel culture that he was born into. There was injustice everywhere he looked. And there's so many things he could have talked about, and he didn't. Because if he saves your soul, you will change. That's what he's after. And that's how we have to approach the transformation of our culture. You can vote for the right people all day long, but if, if, if God does not change the human heart, we're doomed. We're doomed. And, and another thing, I want to always make you realize something before we leave this morning. What we have here in the United States is what is odd. It is not normal. Very few people have ever experienced one day of what we live in every day. The freedom and the fact that Christianity and the church are preferred and favored in this country is very strange and very odd. And so we have to guard our hearts that we don't look at the other side as being our enemies. And we leave church after we've been pumped up with a bunch of political ideas from the pulpit that, that, and we're angry at them. We're mad at the people. And that's our, that's our response. Because then you don't care whether they go to hell or not. You're just mad at them. That's not a Christian attitude. And so Jesus said to love our enemies. Jesus said if, these gets, if someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. We have to be wise as serpents but harmless as doves. And we have to, you're not a pacifist. I'm not saying that. You're not a conscientious objector. But you are, you're, the primary thing that you realize is the source of all injustice and all crime and all prisons and all wars and all everything's bad, diseases, everything else is sin. And we are in the business of 
of reaching out to the lost with the only hope that can change them. And if we end up closing our doors to those people, where are they going to go? So we need the worst people in town in this church because that's who we are. And we need to see them as our mission field and not as some problem that we need to ignore or overcome. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you, God, to deal with us as your children and cause us to love you more and to obey you out of the realization that the commandments of God are the pathway to our own joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.